You're listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes, where you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who lived them. Raw, real, and 100% unapologetic. And now, here is your host, Eric Rogel. Hey, this is Eric Rogel, and welcome back to Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes. And today, I've got another great, real story of the journey to modern manhood told by the man who lived it. My guest this week is Cowboy Jax Young, and I got introduced to him by my brother Ron. And when Ron told me Jax's story, I knew you guys had to hear it. Now, the short version is I could introduce Jax as a man who decided to pursue a career as a country singer and entertainer. Now, many people do that. They have that same dream. But knowing why Jax made that decision and how he got there, that's the real story. That's the inspiring story. See, I see Jax's life as a story of labels. Now, some of these labels were pinned on him, ones that he needed to overcome. And some labels are the ones that he chose himself to wear proudly. Some of those labels include product of a broken home, victim of abuse, troubled youth, disabled veteran, traumatic brain injury sufferer, suicide survivor, country singer and entertainer, as I mentioned before, which is a label he's worn for more than 20 years. And now he also wears the label of CEO and founder. Jack's founded Save Homefront four years ago. Now that's an amazing organization that serves our military veterans by giving them what Jack says is, quote, a help up, not a handout, end quote. So they can integrate into their communities after they serve our country. Now, he'll tell you more about that in a bit, but I, I urge you to go to shfveterans.org and check it out. Now, after meeting Jax and talking to him several times about his story and about where he is now, I found it so far from where he began. So I asked him about the people and circumstances in his life that started him on the path to trouble and about the people who saved him from that path. So Jax, I want to get into um, how you kind of got down the path you're on. You, you had a, a pretty rough childhood growing up, uh, you've told me before, but tell me the story of that. What was, what was it like? Um, who were the influences in your life? Was your father around? No. Um, I basically, when I was 10 years old, I was in a position to where I got into some trouble at school. I lived in South Georgia at the time and literally the people from the boys home were coming to pick me up the next day. And my mama called her mama, who's my nanny. And uh, she came and picked me up and, and truly changed the course of my life. So how'd she Before do that? that what, what, what did she do to change the course of your life? You're not. Um, well, she, she got me out of that environment that I was in. I was on my way. I probably would have been in a boy's home from that time on, probably until I was 18 because of the, you know, the trouble I'd gotten into at that time. And I so... Yeah, Tell me about ahead. that a little bit. Yeah, so the trouble. So it was trouble at home, so no dad. And mom, was mom having struggles? So my mom was 
well, she deals with being bipolar too. And at that time, we didn't know anything about that. Um, but it caused her to make a lot of bad choices. So some of the stepdads that I had, you know, were really bad people. And the stepdad that I was with at the time, you know, would, would physically and mentally abuse us, you know, uh, on a daily basis. And so when I would be physically beaten up at home, I would turn around and take that to school. Mm-hmm. And so because of one of the fights that I'd gotten in on the playground at school, um, a kid had become, you know, injured. And from that, you know, uh, Child Protective Services and those kinds of organizations had stepped in. And I was on my way to being in a boy's home. And the theory was, is that if my nanny grabbed me and took me out of the state and then became my guardian, that it would have been much harder for them to come and track me down. All right. So nanny was nanny to the rescue at that point, right? So she, did she come get, <laughs> did she come grab you and take you out or? Yeah, she absolutely did. Um, right. Within the time that my mama made the call, uh, my nanny had showed up 24 hours later. And then from there, you know, um, I was, I was out of that toxic environment. However, leaving my two brothers behind in that environment was, was pretty traumatic moving forward. Yeah. Was it like a sense of abandoning them or you knew the environment they were going to be in and you kind of felt they were going to be next for this abuse or what was going through your mind? Oh yeah. Um, you know, you know, his name was Brian. You know, Brian was, was very notorious for every day threatening us. My mom worked all the time. So, you know, she wasn't there a lot. And so at 10 years old, I was helping to take care of a newborn baby and my brother that was three years younger than me. So they looked to me for a lot of responsibility. And because of the situation of me having to leave, I absolutely felt like that I abandoned them. Yeah. And um, so what happened next after Nanny takes you out? I mean, were were there any strong men that came into your life at that point that could actually kind of guide you or um, mentor you at this point? No, Eric, it, it pretty much well ended up kind of being more the same. You know, I went to 13 different elementary schools. I was always the new kid. So now I went from, you know, living in ghettos in South Georgia to, you know, Mayberry in uh, Lagodi, Indiana, you know, a farm town. And so it was very intense to, to make that transition. But, you know, I got made fun of a lot because I was different than everybody else. You know, my attitude was different than everybody else. Mm-hmm. I will say that my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Gilbert, really was one of the first men in my life that kind of helped to shape that it was okay to be transparent because mm-hmm. My nerves were so fried that I used to chew on my sleeves because I lived in such a state of, you know, fear, I guess you would say. And I would like twirl my hair and pull it out by the roots. And these were things that I was doing that I didn't even recognize. So once I got out of that environment, they, Mr. Gilbert recognized that, got me into counseling. Mm. And then from there, I was able to tell what, horrendous things had been going on 
you know, on a daily basis for, for years. Yeah. How old were you at that point when, when this happened? Fifth grade of school. So I was around 10 years old, I think. Yeah. 10 or 11. Yeah. And, um, from school, so you, you get into counseling, things start turning around for you, start getting an understanding of what's happening. Is that, uh, you know, going, starting going down the better path at this point? No, sir. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I guess you can say, you know, we got a saying that, you know, out of the skillet into the frying pan. Mm. And uh, so fifth grade of school wasn't too bad. You know, I, I kind of, we lived several miles from outside of town. You know, the nearest neighbor was miles and miles away. So Nanny would take me to a place that was a video uh, place that had an arcade in the back. And so when she'd go to the American Legion and do her thing, she knew the guy that ran that place. And so I'd go in there and play video games and started to learn how to shoot pool and stuff like that. But unfortunately, you know, I fell into the wrong crowd and being the youngest and the most impressionable uh, of that crowd, that relationship continued on for, for a few years. Yeah. So we started down another bad path. Yeah. Well, I stayed, I stayed with my nanny for fifth grade. Then when my mama got away from the environment that she was in, I longed to go back to um, being with my family, mainly from my brothers. Sure. And so, you know, they were very, they, they lived in ghettos. And so, you know, against Nanny's better judgment, she allowed me to go back. And so that next couple of years, then, you know, uh, was a few more elementary schools and uh, some really bad things happened in that environment. Um, my brother went through some serious trauma. Um, and on top of that, my mama kind of fell off the map. So I ended up with my aunt. And then my last day of school, I got jumped by five people going into my, uh, I think it was my eighth grade year. And they beat me unconscious. It was, wow. it was kind of funny, though, because, you know, it just goes to show you wherever you live. Like, it's kind of crazy how all that works out. But this woman that they had beat me unconscious in her yard. And so she came up with her walker and was like nudging me with the shoulder you know, and the rain's falling down or whatever. And she's like, you need to get on out of my yard. I don't need no trouble here. So when my nanny saw that it was really, really bad, um, she took me out final once and for good. And then I started my eighth grade year of school with her. Got it. Got it. And then what happened to your brothers? They stayed with your mama? Uh, unfortunately, my youngest brother um, was taken away from the family, I think when he was four mm. and my other brother who was kind of left to the wind, so to speak, um, became institutionalized and was in an institution until he turned 18 years old. So all three boys were, you know, split up. And, um, at that point in time in my life, I didn't have any kind of influence whatsoever. And the influence that I did have that was from a male perspective was to be, you know, not transparent and not communicate and all those different kind of things. And so I fell in with the wrong crowd. And during 
probably from my eighth grade year in before, right before my junior year, I was fighting, uh, selling drugs, getting into anything and everything I could that was, was really bad for me. And uh, my high school principal said, you'll be dead or in jail, dead or in prison by the time you're 25. Well, how did that hit you when he said that? I mean, was he, was that coming from a place of he wanted to shock you into doing something better or was he being, because it's two different feels on that. One is he's, you know, um, kind of putting you down and you could have yeah. taken it that way. The other is he's trying to wake you up and push you down the right path. So w which was it for you? Which way did it land for you? Well, I mean, at the time being as rageful as I was, mm -hmm. right. I didn't take it the way that I should have took it. I just took it as like, you know, you don't care about me. You don't care anything about anything. You just sound like, you know, everyone else and, mm -hmm. you know, all the stuff that my stepdad used to say came back, you'll, you're nothing, you know, you're a dumb MF or, you know, all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I think in the reality of it was, is that he saw my potential and because he saw my potential and he knew that I could be better, he was very frustrated that, you know, I had a permanent seat in the office at that point. Yeah. And I think that's a common thing, especially for young men when they've been through things like you have, and even if that hasn't been as severe as, as, as what you've gone through, it's how these messages come in can land so differently. So here he's coming with the, you're going to be dead or in prison by the time you're 25. And you took it as a giant fuck you where it was, you know, Hey, look, I'm trying to wake you up. I'm here for you. Right. And, and I think that's, you know, a lot of young men go through that where the message gets lost, you know, so because we we're, we're so used to hearing the negative part of it. Yeah. I mean, I, he was, but the thing was, is he was right. You know, I knew, I felt like from his perspective that he was just kind of blowing smoke because he wanted to scare me, but he didn't realize how bad it was. Mm -hmm. And neither did my nanny either, you know, because I mean, look at this face. You know, I, I could I could do no wrong uh, in her eyes. Sure. And so, you know, living these two different lives was was very interesting. But it really all came to a head when I was 17. And there was this girl that I knew and she died in a car wreck. And the other guy that was with her was a guy that I went to school with and he became just completely different, you know, really suffered from brain damage, you know, all this different kind of thing, or at mm -hmm. least, you know, from the outside looking in. And I realized for the first time in my life, from the time that I'd been a kid till now that I wasn't, I wasn't bulletproof. Yeah. And that that could have been my drugs that they were on. And I didn't want that responsibility. So that woke you up a little bit. And, and where, where did you go from there once you had that kind of realization? Oh, my gosh, man. Uh, well, I, I stopped everything I was doing. Mm -hmm. Well, the other reason was because the crowd that I was running with, and I can talk about all this stuff now because it's all said and done, but, you know, everybody that I know is, that I ran around with has either been to jail several times prison or is dead. Yeah. So when you put that into perspective, 
um, it's unbelievable with no guidance, so to speak, other than tough love that I was able to accomplish what I did. But I went from being a straight up student um, to turning it around to be graduating, I think, with a 3.5 GPA from high school. Wow. Um, worked with multicultural project in Japan. And the coolest thing was, is my senior year, I was the defense attorney in the mock trial for school. <laughs> yeah, a little ironic there. But what, so how long was this turnaround take? I mean, was it like, you know, once this girl, you know, this, this couple was in this accident and she died from the yeah. injuries, was it like an immediate awake, like, holy shit, I've got to turn this around. And then it was a 180 from there? Absolutely. Yeah. 150%. That and the fact that, you know, the state police department had set me down and, you know, here I am in my big puffy Raider jacket, all gangster, you know what I'm saying? And yeah. they're, they're showing these photos of me, you know, uh, what looks like a, a drug exchange, but they don't have anything because they can't really see what's in my hand. Right. You know, but that was the other thing that was knocking on my door was the fact that, you know, if I didn't do something different things was going to get really bad now mm -hmm. i don't think that it would have scared me as bad because i was used to running away from the police and all that other kind of stuff i mean you can't be in the game for lack of a better phrase and not be but when she died and i thought about what i was doing and how that could relate in some way i just didn't want no part of that no more and i literally was ostracized you know, I went from hanging out and being cool and Mr. Party guy that nobody wanted to talk to me. And that hurt tremendously mm. for someone that was always the new kid, because in my mind, I thought I had friends. And really, I didn't have friends. I had people that just because they could use me for something, they were being cool with me. And that hurt a lot. Yeah. So between that and what the principal said to you, turned it around um you graduated high school yes sir and then you went into the army army infantry correct so well oh, go ahead um, tell me how that came about or what happened in between or sure um well basically you know my nanny had done everything that she knew to do in taking care of me um i did in fact get a girl pregnant uh when i was 18 or 17, obviously, because the baby was born when I was 18. Um, that relationship sort of fell apart, again, because I didn't really have any kind of men in my life whatsoever. And so I went and started college. And in the process of um, going to college, uh, some more bad things happened. And my granddad, my papa, he realized that I was in a bad place. And so one summer that I was staying with him, and when I say a bad place, I mean, you know, go big or go home. I was like living out of motels and, you know, working factory job and drinking Wait, this, every this day. This is in college or you had had some bad stuff happen in college and you left college? Well, it started, it started the summer of after I graduated high school and it only got worse from there. And, um, 
I was, again, I was just, I was reckless. You know what I mean? And so wait, I want to get back to this because you turned it sure. around in high school, right? Got the, the better yeah. grades, you know, did all right. of that. And then the summer after what you flipped back into your old habits, is that what was going on? Yeah. Um, the, the girl that I was with uh, at the time um, had, had another relationship with somebody else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact of the fragile aspects of that I never really had a family or anything like that, it really messed me up. You know what I mean? Because it was like, okay, we're going to have this baby. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. I'm going to find my redemption by doing this. Mm -hmm. Right. And then when that failed again, it was just like, you know, fuck it. <laughs> right. So you, you know felt I mean? like I'm going to create the family I never had. That's exactly right. right. I'm going to be the dad that I never had. I'm going to treat my kid the way I was not treated. And then that fell apart. Right. So there was like a disillusionment in your mind about what was reality and what was delusion. Absolutely. Because I mean, there was no, you know, there was no marriage, there was no family, there was no nothing. And now that, you know, this guy that was supposed to have been my best one of my best friends, one of the guys I grew up with is now with her, mm -hmm. you know, it just, it, it really messed me up. Yeah. And so instead of being a part of hurting other people, because I believe that if you sell drugs to people, you're hurting other people, you're contributing to their pain. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was self-destructive, okay. you know, in the bars, you know, um, drinking you know all that kind of stuff and um so yeah he put me in the truck and i didn't even know where we were going we got the recruiting station and he said you're gonna sign up or you're gonna get out of my house <laughs> wow now had he served was he a military veteran your grandfather uh yes sir yeah so he, he knew what it was gonna sergeant. give you right okay oh he was a master sergeant yeah master sergeant and served in the korean war Fantastic. Well, listen, I, I would appreciate his service and yours as well. But um, so he knew this was going to help you. I mean, he knew this was going to give you the direction, the discipline, the guidance, the mentorship that he knew you needed. Yeah, I think he knew it was vital. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So tell me how that was. So you get into the army, right? Because obviously, you, you know, you, you took his advice and you went in. What was that like for you? Was it a sh like a culture shock or was it like, oh, thank God, this is what I've been looking for? <laughs> <laughs> I always like to tell people that within that first two weeks of being downrange, I sweat every bit of dope, anger, <laughs> alcohol, sex, sin completely out of my body. When I first got there, I thought, man, I have made a mistake. Because no one was really there from a male aspect to hold me accountable, right? Mm -hmm. So you go from an environment of this loving grandmother that's done everything that she can to raise this hellacious teenager to, you know, uh, zero three PT structure, don't speak unless spoken to, blah, blah, blah. I don't even know how many times I pushed Georgia to China because I graduated from Fort Benning and I was always beating my face because I had a mouth on me like no other. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I was angry. I mean, I yeah. was, I, I didn't realize 
how angry I really was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the time in the army. So you get this, you finally get held accountable, like you said. Mm -hmm. And when did you start to feel more part of something or more like you were getting into being your own man? Well, just like everything else in my life, um, I'm never the first one to get it. <clears throat> but I am one of these people that I'm tenacious, meaning that I just won't quit. And so when I first got in the Army, uh, especially through basic and AIT, I struggled. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people, same thing like high school. People made fun of me. You know, you're too opinionated, all this other kind of stuff. The two things that were really my saving grace was, number one, I sang. And so at night, I would sing in the, in the you know, when we're in the rack. Uh, and the guys liked that part of it. And then the other piece was, um, I fell asleep on fire guard. And that's a big no-no. Mm -hmm. um, because it's teaching you discipline and things of that nature. So how it used to work, I don't know how it works now, but how it used to work is that your company paid for your sins or your platoon paid for your sins or your squad. Everybody in total. Sins. So you hold each other accountable as men, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was a turning point for me because I had to stand in the middle saying, ha ha, you know, I get to sleep and you don't or whatever it was. And watching these guys, I mean, the drill sergeants smoke the ever living shit out of them. And breaking down that emotional experience, coming out on the other side of that, my drill sergeant said, I'm going to make sure that you don't graduate basic training. You know, I don't mm -hmm. think you belong here kind of thing. And yeah. so it was it was really wild because, you know, after that moment and they, they seeing how raw I was and how it emotionally impacted me, I kind of became a motivator for the platoon. And we all really started to come together after that. And that was the turning point for me in basic. So you really learned um, that it wasn't just about you at that point. Right. Absolutely. Not only were you know you held accountable by other people, but you were accountable to them, right? Yes. Not just by them, but to them. And your actions actually had these consequences on other people. Well, they became my brothers. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. That that epiphany hit that this is no different than when I was ten years old. Right. And I didn't realize it, but. I just didn't trust anymore because I'd been burnt by girls. You know, I'd been burnt by my buddies. And so to have this bond of this idea, right? Like, I'm not saying that it's this big, you know, I don't, it's hard to explain. I'm not saying that it's just like this big free for all and we're all holding hands and skipping in Kumbaya and all that stuff. Right. But when you have such, a disconnect as like what I had in my life growing up with anything that had to do with a man at this point to know that you would lay your life on the line for anyone like this. Um, it was truly an epiphany. Yeah. Brilliant. And, and, um, I can feel how your grandfather knew that's what it would give you. 
and what you needed. And he was following his intuition and getting you there. Yeah. I mean, the cool, it's so funny that you mentioned that you're so intuitive because he had never sat down. I mean, listen, he was old school. You know what I mean? He was an old school Kentuckian. He had a, I think an eighth grade education and he built an empire in the coal mining industry mm. and he wasn't a big talker. You know, Jack Duval was a doer. And so, you know, I don't think that he knew how to connect emotionally in that way. So the coolest thing that ever happened to me was after I graduated basic in AIT and left to come back to join a green to gold program. I was at my papa's house and he sat down and he talked with me. And that was one of two times ever in my whole life that he sat down and he spoke with me and he spoke to me like a man. Hmm. And that was huge. Yeah. And it made it make you feel like a man. I mean, it was like man to man at that point, not, you know, grandfather to little boy anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And did you have that feeling from then on that like you'd made it through, you'd passed that rite of passage into manhood and you could actually guide your own life from this point? Well, I felt like that there was a sense of accountability that was present at that point. You know, the, the army values are loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. And even though I hadn't figured out my journey at that point, I at least now had some tools that I could lean on. And so being in a green to gold program, I was double majored in philosophy and military science. And my goal was to become a JAG lawyer. Then from finishing out my career, I would have applied or ran to be a federal prosecutor. And my lifetime goal was to become a United States Supreme Court justice. Hmm. Then September 11th happened. And uh, I felt compelled to go back to active duty instead of finishing out school. And that's when I got stationed at the 101st Airborne Division, first of the 502nd Infantry Air Assault. Mm. And is that when you were injured? Was in that, it is. During that tour. So tell me about that a little bit, because this was a traumatic brain injury, correct? Yeah. Well, so again, if you'll notice throughout my life, because of the fact that I didn't have the influence of mom and dad, I really think dad, you know what I mean? Uh, because Nanny was there and she did the best that she could. But I think the sense of being a father can give you a perspective um, that is very needed in a child's life. You know, Denzel Washington says, look at the home. Where's the dad? You know? And so again, I had, you know, gotten into a relationship, had a shotgun wedding with this girl you know, um, found out once we got down range that, you know, I don't think she was all that interested in me as much as she was the opportunity of what being a military wife can bring. And in the course of, I think, two years or a year and a half or something like that, you know, she was cheating on me. Uh, my, my daughter um, was born dead. And I was in a combat training exercise that ended my military career. 
So that all that happened at one time. Yes, one right after the other. Wow. So so tell me about um, so you, and I have to ask this, Jax. I mean, did did having the the trauma of the death of your child and the end of your marriage contribute to what happened in the training exercise? No, sir. Um, going to the field for me when all that stuff was going on was great because mm-hmm. I would stay actively engaged in doing something. You know, if you're constantly training on how to save the person to your left or your right, you know, you're not thinking about anything else. Mm-hmm. And so, I, again, instead of like being vulnerable and transparent, I just leaned on what I was supposed to do. I beefed myself up to be this super tough dude and, you know, all about saving lives and all that. So essentially what happened was we were doing a mount exercise, um, which is where you go inside of a, an urban area and enter and clear a building. And I was going up a ladder and it's pitch dark. So all that you see is like, you know, the muzzle fire that's going off around you. You don't see anything because it's real world. And so um, the way that the training exercise is. So going up the ladder, the guy above me hadn't secured his ammo. And he was taking a big bunch of ammo up to the guy on the top floor that was laying down suppressive fire in the scenario. Well, that ammo got loose. And when it did, it fell and it hit me in the head. So essentially, I got hit with like 50 pounds coming down, you know, so many feet per second. And it rattled my cage so hard that I let go of the bars. And when I did, I landed on my head. And if I wouldn't have had my K pot on my head or, you know, my Cavalier uh, helmet, I probably would have been dead. I'm, I'm pretty sure I passed out. I'm not sure. But the, the doc found me. He saw the blood coming down my head. He grabbed me and just, you know, put me against the wall because that's what you would do in a real world situation, even mm-hmm. though it was a training exercise. And so, you know, once all the hoopla is over, everybody's secure, everybody's kind of checked everything out, then the doc goes around and finds everybody. And so when he found me, you know, I had the blood coming down my head and whatnot. And, uh, you know, they immediately pulled me out and pulled me back in the field trains and, uh, gorilla glued it shut. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And, um, that was all she wrote, you know, I mean, Hey, it's, it's real world, man. You know what I'm saying? Like when you're an infantry soldier and you know, if you got to play your life out, like every single day that you're either training for combat or you're going to combat or you survive combat. And so the next day I got ready to do PT and went to take off running and the road just started going all these different directions up and down and left and right. And for the first time I fell out of a run and I threw up and you know, at first because my hands had developed a shape, they thought I had Parkinson's, but realized that I didn't have Parkinson's. And then just a whole bunch of bad shit ensued after that. Yeah. Um, Tell me a little bit about what happened after that. Was it, was it a physical or a a mental um, spiral that started happening from this? Well, for me, I mean, I was pretty ignorant. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, I went to 13 different elementary schools. I'd grew up the way that I did. I mean, 
I didn't know anything or even to acknowledge anything physical because I was in the army. You know what I mean? In the infantry, you don't really, you don't ever want a PT profile because that shows weakness and there is no weakness. You can be weak when you're dead. You know what I mean? And that had been your whole life, right? You had to show that strength from the time you were a little kid all the way through into the army. You got it. And so, um, the guy that was in charge of me, um, had a real hard on for wanting to put down other people. And so, um, he started riding my ass because I couldn't qualify with a weapon anymore. I couldn't run anymore, you know, and to him, this was just a sign of weakness. Right. And so my battle buddy that I had met at the time, his name was Rel Rivago. Rel really stepped up, stepped up to help me and a few other people. Well, it all came to a head because this guy wanted to drum me out on a bad conduct discharge, right? Even though I'd been a stellar soldier, he wanted to drum me out. And I mean, when I say stellar, like, I mean, I did great in PT. I, I qualified as a sharpshooter. I was an infantry scout. I worked for battalion. I was school's NCO. And long story short, I ended up living in a broom closet. And every day they would parade me out in front of my unit to make me an example or this guy would. Mm. And so my company commander uh, got wind of what was happening to me and said, you're not going to drum him out on a bad conduct discharge. So at that point I was discharged honorably with a 50% disability. Right. From, <clears throat> and then what, what happened from there? Because I know, you know, when you and I spoke earlier um, before we jumped on here, one of the things that happened with this was you were suicidal for a long time. Well, that, that came, that came later. Um, okay. when, when I, when I first got out, um, I had trouble, you know, uh, I came from a world of discipline and execution and no excuses. How and long so, were you in the army at that point before you were discharged? Uh, I think my total service um, I think it was four years. I think I went in like the summer of 97 or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, um, at the 101st airborne division, I think I was there for like a year or possibly two. Um, I don't know. I have trouble with numbers for some reason because okay. of what I So it was with. a decent amount of time. It wasn't like you were just in for two years. I mean, it was a little over four years. And so you've been living that disciplined life now for four years and thriving right. in it. Right. Now you're out. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I got in trouble because again, overachiever mentality, you know, got in my first job was working at a jewelry store. And, um, I went off on this lady because she didn't put the tags in right for the rings. And the manager pulled me aside and said, you know, we think you have a lot of potential, but you can't talk to people like that. You can't, (laughs) (laughs) you can't do that. And he said, so we got to let you go. And mm. so I ended up working at a department store. Um, I was receiving in the morning and then I was lost prevention at night. And so, you know, uh, it was interesting. But during that time, uh, my unit did deploy to Iraq. And my battle buddy was, was killed in Iraq doing the job that I would have been doing if I would have been there. Wow. And at that point, I knew that I needed to make a change in my life. I needed to do something big. And so 
So it was a sense of purpose at that point, right? You lost him and now you're feeling your own sense of purpose. Oh, survivor's guilt, 1000%. You know, you don't join the infantry to not want to go to the big game. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And that never happened for me. I got benched permanently. And uh, so that's where I started country music. Tell me about that. What got you? I mean, because you you said you sang in the barracks when um, you guys were in there and they they seemed to like it. So this is something you've always done is singing, but now you decided to make this a career. Rail Rail was the inspiration for it. And Rail is the one who was was killed, correct? Yeah. Rail Rivago IV, yeah. Yeah. And he was the inspiration how? Tell me. Well, it's crazy when you think about your life and rel was not that I didn't want anyone to not come back, but he was the one guy that I wanted to come back. Hmm. And he was larger than life. You know what I mean? I mean, he's this little Filipino dude, but you know, he could high kick above your head and I'm six foot three. You know, he did all the, you know, break dance moves and always had a smile on his face and all this other kind of stuff. I mean, he was just, he was a better man than me, especially at that point in my life where that's the way I felt about it. Yeah. And so in the platoon CP, I would sing all the time. And then I was stationed at Fort Campbell and we would come down to Nashville to raise hell, you know, and have fun. Um, Cause you get a PhD in beer drinking in the infantry (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) so so uh you know we was down in nashville one time and you know the group of guys i was with was like young i bet you don't have the balls to get up there and sing a song it was this thing called karaoke you Mm -hmm. know uh sure it was just getting big back then and uh so there was 13 shots on the line so I was like, all right, I'll get up and sing for 13 shots. I was doing the math, you know, <laughs> and uh, so I sang and, you know, the crowd responded very well. Like they loved it. It was a packed house and all that stuff. And so for the rest of the night, Rail pretended like he was my manager. <laughs> <laughs> and so we just played it up, you know, and, uh, and then so it got back to Fort Campbell that I sang and so we were in the mess hall and there's like I don't know 300 people in there eating or whatever and command sergeant major Wilson comes in so everyone stands up at parade rest you know and are at attention mm-hmm. and then he says young I hear you sing I was like roger that sergeant major just like that too with that crack in my voice he said, Young, would you like to sing for me right now? No, I would not. <laughs> and so, you know, he called everybody else to at ease and all that. And uh, he said, in all seriousness, you know, we have a division change of command coming up. And we would like for you to sing the national anthem. Wow. And wow. Uh, Amazing honor. Oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> so long story short, you know, Winona came in at the last minute and stole my thunder. And then years later, when her and I were at a party in Nashville, I reminded her of that story and she laughed about it. But so, so, 
you know, I mean, I don't know. I guess you could call it a midlife crisis. I guess you could call it a moment of consciousness or whatever. But music really started to help me. Yeah. Heal. Yeah. And I ever and since it reminded then, you. I'm, I'm going to bring this up for a minute because it reminded you of Rail, right? Oh, every you time, sing, I sing. right? And and honoring him. And and what I'm feeling when you're talking about him is, it almost I see the connection between him and your brothers. Mm. that he became that that brother to you that you lost when your other two brothers when you three of you were separated yeah you found him again in him yeah because one of the only things my mama ever bought me uh and i, I don't tell you all this stuff eric because it's like oh feel sorry right. for jacks i tell you this stuff and and the listeners out there because of what comes next when we get to that you know mm. but um my mama had bought me a leatherman and you know it's a it's a tool the multi-tool right the leatherman multi-tool yeah right exactly and so um i gave that to rail because he had a shitty gerber (laughs) and i used to bust his balls about it all the time i was like it's it's such a shitty tool so guys out there leatherman not gerber sorry gerber (laughs) but uh i think we just lost a sponsor but we might have gained another one so you know (laughs) right yeah Yeah. a better one but uh (laughs) so long story short you know i gave it to him i said look man i said i want you to have this i want you to take this with you over there and i want you to bring it back home and he said i can't i can't take this and i was like well you know i want you to have it and so so yeah i I never had that epiphany till just this moment with you mm. that there very much well could have been that connection. And that's why I gave him that Leatherman. Yeah. And of course, obviously, you know, and never come home. Right. And then to lose him, like you lost your brothers. And I can absolutely see that. So the yeah. singing is that connection to him for you and also a way of honoring him. Absolutely. Which is, which is beautiful. So, um, you know, I want to I want to get into because we 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 just kind of touched on it, but you know, you you had felt suicidal for a while, and and a lot of men do. I mean, the the, the statistics are staggering. I think seventy percent of suicides every year are men, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of it is because men don't feel like you said it can't be vulnerable, it can't be transparent, and we hold this inside. And so I want to kind of get briefly how it was for you and how you got past that. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, uh, I got involved in country music, fast forward, moved to Nashville, you know, all that kind of thing, started getting in the entertainment industry um, and all that. And what I didn't know was, is I'd been dealing with traumatic brain injury for about 15 years. Mm. And one of the things that happens with brain damage is you deal with a higher heightens of anxiety. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I was dealing with all this stuff behind the scenes and I didn't realize it. So long story short, um, <laughs> one day I'd gotten into a disagreement or something was said by my now divorced wife at the time. And um, I went up to my son's room and I locked the door and I put a belt around my neck and I hung myself. Mm. So you actually did attempt suicide. It wasn't just thoughts. Yes. Yep. And, and so what happened? Well, I mean, obviously um, somebody found you or, you know, 
Well, no, I'm an overachiever. And uh, at least that day, I'm glad I, I didn't accomplish my goal. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, the, the thing I'd used to sustain my weight to hang myself with broke. And, um, you know, my body weight slumped down or whatever. And I went to asphyxiation in my brain. I think I started losing, you know, oxygen in my brain. And so when I came out of it, I had the belt around my neck and all that, but I thought I was dead. And I was like, oh man, <laughs> like, no, like obviously I didn't make it to heaven cause I'm still stuck here. You know what I mean? And right. um, so I went over and I opened the door and I was like, oh, I guess ghosts can open doors. You know, I was like, oh, that's cool. And so I walked to the edge of the steps and I was like, I'm going to have some fun with this. I'm going to see if I can fly, float, whatever. And so I'm six foot three, 220 pounds, and I just stepped off. Oh, wow. And when I did, um, I started falling. And in that few seconds, I realized that I was alive. And I realized that I could be dead. So I clung to life. God, please let me live. God, please let me live bam hit the stairs like a ton of bricks all this pain shoots through my whole body but i'm so joyous because i'm alive hmm. and so between realizing that it's not your life to take meaning that as an animal you have a fight or flight mechanism right and that fight or flight mechanism says i'm going to stay in fight or i'm going to flee it never says Ah, fuck it. I'm just going to die. Right? Mm -hmm. So we are animals. Even though we're highly evolved animals, we're animals nonetheless. So that was the first part. I realized that when it wasn't in my control to take my life, I wanted to live. So therefore, I really didn't want to die. There was something else that I needed to push into. The other piece of it was the seeing the reaction of people's faces. And what it would have been like if I would have accomplished my goal. Right. Because I saw the look on their face of them saying, what did I do wrong? What could I do different? And they so blaming themselves for the pain that you were in. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And you could have offered me a million dollars cash, bro. And that day I probably still would have did what I did. So I get really upset when I hear people continuously say suicide prevention. Okay. Because you cannot prevent suicide. What I found out after 30 counseling sessions with the VA is you can get educated on anxiety. Mm -hmm. And if you understand anxiety and you can get educated on anxiety, then you never get to suicide. Right. That, that's where you can, you and people around you can actually work together. Once it gets to suicide or that decision, I don't care what you do. You're, you're going to commit suicide or make the attempt if that's what you really want. And statistically, suicide survivors, every single one of them, whether after I pulled the trigger, jumped off the bridge, attempted to hang myself, as soon as that next moment happens, they immediately realize they fucked up. Right. Because they want to live. Because psychologically, the animal inside of you says fight or flight. Isn't that intriguing? 
Yeah, no, I can see that too. And it's, it's, it's that moment of, holy shit, there's like a reality there, right? Mm -hmm. To me, it's almost like there's that fantasy of what's it going to be like? I'm just going to end this and reboot. But then there's that shock of reality that comes in it like, no, this is the end. And it gets people back on track into where they are. So I can feel that. And you know, um, as we're wrapping this up, Jax, I want to get into what you're doing now, because what I'm really seeing in, in, in your story here is, you know, obviously an incredible journey from where you were as a kid and, and some of the influence that you had. I'm going to count that principle as one. Your grandfather is a huge one. And then the men in the army, you know, rail, your, your, your battle buddy, all these guys. But you're now, um, besides the singing career, and uh, we'll put some links in the, uh, in the show notes. People can come, because I've listened to your music. It's fantastic. And I, and I love the, um, the, the music video that you did. But you're doing some stuff now that really is all tied around giving back. And it's, mm -hmm. it's like you've become the mentor that you wish you had growing up. Like there's that old saying is, um, you know, be the man you wish you had when you were a kid. And I'm really feeling that in you here. And you started um, Save Homefront mm -hmm. for, for military veterans. And then you have, you know, the, the Americana bike project that you're doing. So I want to get into Save Homefront real quick and, and, and what the purpose behind that is and, and, and what it gives to you and how it's helping other men going forward. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, you can go to our website, shfveterans.org and learn about our mission and, and things of that nature. But the behind the scenes aspect of it was, is that I realized after I ended up in the green pajamas behind the glass doors at the VA mm -hmm. and being with these guys that that was their lives and that this was temporary for me because it was hell. I was only there for three days, but I was terrified because you check yourself in, but they decide when you leave. Hmm. So there's no so, end point. It could just be forever. So there's that's no. That's exactly right. Right. Got that's it. Exactly right. And a lot of these younger guys had worked out of understanding the system a little bit. You know, they go here, they go to rehab, then they're back out on the streets. And we're not talking about, you know, to me, depiction makes all the difference of what a U.S. veteran is. And before I had been behind those glass doors with those guys to me the depiction of a veteran was someone like my papaw you know he's got the hat on he's sitting at the american legion he's drinking a miller light and he's probably you know and so these were 18 to 35 year old guys right mm -hmm. their buddy died in a war their family didn't understand them you know they couldn't connect in some way because they didn't understand how to be vulnerable or transparent because everything they'd been told to them is that they should be bulletproof, which by the way, transparency and vulnerability is the greatest strength that you can have. Anyone that wants to challenge me on that, I've lived it. And uh, so the reality is I realized that the narrative needed to change. And uh, so what started out is the journey of, of, getting educated turned into what can I contribute and what I can contribute and what we contribute is, is I don't want you to think of a veteran and think of those stereotypes. 
of PTSD, suicide, go to war, all those things. When you think of a veteran, I want you to think about what happens next in life, right? And that, that was a major epiphany, even for me, to let go of that connection with the uniform being as saturated as it was. And in doing so, you know, we started Save Homefront. We've worked with awesome celebrities. Our most recent project is Americana the Chopper. Mm -hmm. um, Paul Sr. and the great group over there, along with Josh So that's Allison. Paul, so I just want to say Paul Sr. from American Chopper, from Orange County Choppers. Yes, who, sir. Who was a guest on the show. Who, who, who was yeah, on phenomenal here interview. Yeah, great, um, great guy. Really opened up. It was, it was beautiful. So he's got a bike called the Americana bike, correct? Yeah, Americana one of the, the, one of the choppers. choppers that he built. Yeah, and you're doing yep. what with it now? Uh, well, basically, it was donated to us because it was built in tribute of 100 years of Veterans Day in this country. So instead of it going in someone's garage, I thought that it belonged in a museum. Typically, what people do with these bike projects is they sell them, they get some money for their programs, and then they move on, right? Mm -hmm. But to me, the historical significance was that much more with this. So we want to build Americana the Chopper to become a pop cultural icon and then donate it to the Smithsonian Institute. So that way, 4 million people foot traffic a day hear the story of veterans and community neighbors, non-veterans, coming together to make history. And how we're doing that is through getting our shirt out there that will launch in November, which it says, this shirt makes history, right? Everyone talks about their history right now, right? What they, what they think their history is or what they think their history is and all these different kinds of things. Well, this shirt works in two ways. One, buying one, you become a part of history because you're helping with the movement of Americana the Chopper. But secondly, everywhere you go, everywhere you wear the shirt, you make your own history because we need to unite our country right now. And a way that do, to do that isn't forcing our opinions on each other, but finding a way to come together with our own actions, right? You want to change your history? You want your history to be different? You can do that with this shirt, and you can send that message with this shirt. And it is about communicating, right? It's coming together. So I want to get into the purpose of this, because I, I love what you're doing with that, and, and, and I want to know... What's the, the, the why behind it? What, what is the legacy you want to leave with this? Because it really feels to me like, again, it is being the man that you needed when you were there. And it's, it's bringing that into others. Yeah, I, I just sat back in. I'm, I'm a thinker and a strategist. Shocker, coming from a military background. But uh, I wanted to find a way to contribute to everyone without rubbing anyone the wrong way, right? I wanted to show that you can be passionate and have conviction about what you want and how you want things to be, but doing it in a way that doesn't harm someone else, right? Right, without tearing down, right? It's about contributing ideas and supporting each other and, and being there for each other without tearing down. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I may get crucified for this, but you know what? That's just how cowboys roll. Like, I don't think we're going to reach the next generation by calling them snowflakes. I don't think that we're going to cross party lines between 
whatever your po political beliefs are by continuing to say why your political beliefs are better. Mm -hmm. You know, I believe that I'm a man of the people and being a man of the people, just like Jesus, is about bringing people together. You know, Waylon and Willie, as an example, during the 60s and early 70s, they had hippies, cowboys, every race, every conservative, any type of person you can imagine was coming together through their music. Right. And so through this shirt, I believe that you make your own history, that we can make our own history right now. That's powerful, right? It may not, it may not seem like it's even plot, you know, something that that's applicable for yourself. But with this shirt, when we accomplish our goal of getting Americana the Chopper in a museum, you can say that you were a part of history. What would you pay to be a part of history or even have that opportunity? Right. And so it's my thoughts that by leading by example with this message and, mm -hmm. and we have a million folks out there with this message, by the way, then we can really start to make a difference and make impact. So it's that sense of duty and, and honoring, you know, I'm thinking we talk about the sacred seven here, courage, honesty, integrity, commitment, duty, honor, and love. And, you know, I'm feeling around that with what you're doing now, it is such a, a commitment to everyone, first of all, and that you have you're feeling this duty to honor everyone's opinions, everyone's outlook, everyone's feelings going forward. Mm -hmm. Am I right there? Yeah. Or create a new perspective, right? Mm -hmm inspiration is the seed that creates what people become motivated to, to that motivation actually creates action, right? You can be motivated and not necessarily act. Mm -hmm. But when you look at all the stereotypes that, that veterans face, when you look at the majority of America saying that they don't know how to relate to a veteran, well, veterans have helped build America, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The military Absolutely. culture is a completely different thing. And so instead of it looking like, instead of it looking like you're disconnected to somebody in a way and that you've got to find all these different ways of process of how you can get connected with someone the reality is, is you're connected already, right? So many U.S. veterans go on to do amazing things in this country, you know, and they may not have necessarily had the best military experience, but still went on to do amazing things in this country. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm saying is, is that it's not as complicated as we're making it, right? Just as simple as the message of the shirt that says this shirt makes history. Plus, it's amazing because it's 100% American-made. So we're helping to grow American jobs with our partner, Authentically American. You know, and OCC has been kind enough to also lend their branding to the shirt because they believe in what we're doing, which is, you know, absolutely epic. Absolutely. And so it seems so simple, but sometimes it's simplicity 
that can get us to where we need to go. Well, what I like about what you're saying too, Jax, is it's the action, right? So many people have amazing ideas and, oh, I'd like to do something, but it's about action. And I think the simplicity in this too is that you're making it easy for someone to make, to take action. Like I buy t-shirts anyway. So if I buy this one, I'm helping with this cause. So it's simplicity all the way around. I love that. And, you know, normally um, as we end this, I usually ask, you know, what do you want your legacy to be? What, what do you want going forward? And, and I'm feeling a lot of that from you. And, and I want to talk about um, your family now, because I think that's a big part of your legacy of a very strong woman by your side now, correct, Linda? Mm, absolutely. Yes. So tell me how that is now, finally, after all these years of searching for that family, and we're taking it full circle now from your first experience at age 17, 18, to where you are now all these years later and, and really building that family, that legacy going forward. Tell me about that. So I think I'd like to start out by saying that you need to be vulnerable and you need to be transparent in your life because those are the greatest strengths that you can have. I can't iterate that enough, especially for men. Um, my son that I had had, when I was 18, I hadn't been in his life, you know, um, and he found me when he turned 18 and we've reconnected and he's a sailor. He's on deployment right now. Um, guess the apple fall, doesn't fall far from the tree. Sure. Um, you know, uh, my 10 year old um, is from a two parent home. So, you know, um, I've worked very hard with him in the time that I do have with them to keep that structure, you know, that I didn't have and to teach him the value of integrity. I can't stress to any parent enough that teaching your children so they can figure out what they want to do is a lot different than telling your children what to do. Mm -hmm. Right. Because at the end of the day, you're not going to be there. And, and it's about being an clue, example also. I want to add that in too. It's being the example as well. Not just without, teaching them, but also demonstrating it and being it yourself. Absolutely. 150%. And the glue that holds that all together is Linda. You know, Linda has her own story. Um, she's, you know, public about it when she, she's an army veteran as well. And, you know, her husband committed suicide in front of her. And several years later, finding me and me being a suicide survivor and me being the infantry and he was an army ranger and all this stuff, there's a lot of parallels. And so for her to be courageous enough to take on, you know, <laughs> a kid that just rotated back into my life when he turned 18, you know, he's in his, you know, he's in his tw early 20s now. And, you know, a 10 year old that has a completely different, uh, mother and situation that he comes in and out of all the time. And then to deal with the stuff with me is unbelievable. I will say this, our relationship is far from perfect. As a matter of fact, I don't believe in the word perfect. I believe in exploring your imperfections because your imperfections is what makes you who you are. And it's through those imperfections in our relationship and the transparency and me being vulnerable 
that has helped us to stay together and to be able to grow. And so that's another thing that I want to express to men is whether you have another man in your life, I don't judge, or you have a woman in your life, you know, don't seek out these people to fix your problems because it's not going to happen. You've got to fix your own issues as you continue to grow throughout life. But make sure that with the partner that you do choose, that it makes sense and that you can love them where they're at in their life because you're not going to change anyone unless they want to change. And so it's amazing, Eric, that in my life, going through everything that I went through, everything is starting to heal. Everything is starting to come full circle. And I think that that's another thing that's super important to understand. No situation lasts longer than what it's intended to last. And if you can last past that, if you want more for yourself in your life and the differences that you want to make, then you will start to see healing at some point in your life. But it's not going to come when you want it. It's going to come when it's meant to be. Beautifully said, Jax, really beautifully said. And I, and I think part of that too is, is realizing now that you have, you know, Linda in your life and your kids in your life is that no man goes through it alone, right? We were never expected to go through it alone. There is that support. There is being vulnerable, transparent, as you say, there is allowing that relationship into your life, allowing the other people into your life and um, accepting that support. Well, you, you hit, another great epiphany, Eric, is the fact of that, look how long that I went it alone. And look where that ended up. And look where once I finally opened up and I was honest with myself, not only was I able to make the changes that I made, but now I'm in a position to speak, motivate, and act for generations to come on a global level, but on my own personal level, my son will have the father that I never had. And that's all because I elected to be vulnerable and transparent. I know that I keep beating people over the head with that, but it really did shape and change that and getting educated on understanding anxiety. I can't stress that enough. There's no such thing in my opinion, and I'm not a doctor, but I am a suicide survivor, uh, that will, will help you more and help the ones that you love more than getting educated on anxiety. Right. right. So as we end this, Jax, what's the, the one lesson or one piece of advice or one thing that you learned in your life that you would leave us with and pass along to everyone who's listening? Honestly, I think I look at, you know, um, our motto here at SHF, which is a proper depiction makes all the difference. When we judge people and we create stereotypes and we lead with our opinion first, we don't ever take the opportunity to see past the cover. And once you see past the cover and you start, you start being able to read the book 
there might be some amazing chapters in there that not only influence or inspire your life, but inspire and influence their life because you took the time to read the book. And that is so incredibly important, right? We don't often take the time to really go deeper in our connections to others. And as I said in the beginning, it's just so easy to pin a label on them and move on. Now, I was going to leave you with that point that Jack's just made, but after Jax and I finished our conversation, I still had the recording going and Jax made a powerful statement about impact and making an impact. And I wanted to let you hear it. So what happened is I had asked him if he saw anything new or had any epiphanies after our conversation. And here's what he said. The connection to rail, um, being like my brother's, definitely um, was something that I hadn't thought about. Yeah. And, you know, my nanny's in the beginning stages of hospice right now. And so I've been, I've been really going through it. Yeah. Uh, And. uh, Well, listen, brother, you know, you ever need to talk or anything, I'm right here. So yeah, don't hesitate, man, reach out. Well, I appreciate that. And, um, you know, the other major epiphany that I had in this, in this journey today is just how much I've grown. Yeah. You know, we don't give ourselves enough credit for that, do we? No. I mean, I've been, man. I've been pondering the mysteries of the universe, my own mentality. Like there's so much that goes on when you start this grieving process. And, uh, I, I really feel better or I'm inspired to feel better by the fact that I guess I have accomplished more than what I thought. And then it doesn't have to be about your bank account and it doesn't have to be about your, your economic status, you know? Yeah. So I appreciate it, man. Yeah, man. No, it's about that impact, brother. That's really what it is. I mean, it's, that's the, that's the karmic bank account, the cosmic bank account of the universe, right? How much we're putting in there and influencing the lives of others. So that's why I appreciate what you're doing so much, man. I really do. And that really is the most important thing, isn't it? The impact that we make on the lives of others and on the world It's far more important when the cosmic bill comes due because you won't be able to pay that with money. And also hearing Jax's story, there's, there's so much of the sacred seven core values in there. You know, his courage to face his demons and to be brutally honest with himself, to be transparent as he puts it. Um, His commitment to his military brothers and to his family and the duty that he feels to them. And of course the love that he has for them and, um, and to do what he does to honor them. So that's it for this episode. So please, as always, make sure to share this show with men you know will get value from it to pass it on. I want to thank Cowboy Jax Young for joining us today, for being real and honest and telling us the story of his hero's journey. And I want to thank you for listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes today. I'm Eric Rogel, and I'm honored to be with you, to be your brother by your side on your hero's journey. I'll talk to you next time.
Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, Yeah. right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? (laughs) The Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripodis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.